Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So, Robert, uh, turning to you, uh, it's the beginning of the year, it's January. Uh, so, we're looking ahead. A lot of people took a break from market machinations over Christmas uh, and may well have been reflecting on the year that had just elapsed. So, let's um, embrace that duality. Let's start, if we may, with a, with a macro recap. So, how did we end last year, 2022, in terms of uh, global economic health and inflation, and uh, looking then forwards, here we are in January. Uh, what's on the horizon now? What lies ahead of us? Thanks, Ian. I think when we're putting uh, this year in context, it's worthwhile putting in the wider context of the last few years and some of the important cycles that we think about, the, the pillars of investment uh, world for us. And one of those pillars is liquidity. And I think liquidity has been quite a key driver, really, in the story certainly over the last three years. Um, what COVID provided was that sudden stop of economic activity, which was very abnormal. Um, and what followed was that wave of uh, government support, fiscal and monetary support, which unleashed a wave of liquidity, um, which was necessary to counteract the effects of everyone stopping working and sudden, sudden stop of activity. But it did fuel... Uh, a bubble in markets. So markets started expensive in 2020, um, pre-COVID, and then the bubble of um, liquidity post-COVID really fueled the recovery in prices after March, uh, but fueled this uh, abnormal wave. Really, a lot of them were the stay-at-home trade, but it fueled a lot of asset classes going from uh, Q1 2020 through to really the first half of uh, 2021. So that was the wave of liquidity pushing assets up. But what followed as liquidity started to peak, and although there was still liquidity, that second derivative, it started to fall away. That was really when we started to see pressures emerge in the markets um, from really Q1 21. Um, and it was that dollar liquidity coming out of the markets which created the, the problems and, and sort of set us up for the year last year, 2022, a falling equity, falling bond markets um, added to the problem of, of rising inflation. So it was a liquidity going out story which was creating the issue. So I suppose in that cycle, we're still faced with uh, the potential headwinds of, of dollar liquidity. So um, if we're looking just at liquidity, what's changed as we go into this year, really starting in from about September um, in going into Q4, um, liquidity at the margins has started to come back into the system. And most notably, I think the, the, the indicator that you can look at uh, most clearly is really the US dollar. 
Um, and the US dollar follows that story. Dollar liquidity uh, going into markets, dollar liquidity coming out, fueled the dollar rise. And from Q4, really, the dollar started to fall as liquidity is ebbing back into markets. Um, so that's a good news for people um, uh, at the margins as we approach this year, really thinking about what could fuel asset prices um, is dollar liquidity. And that, I think, has really been the story of the first couple of weeks. Uh, maybe somewhat surprisingly, when we come on to the economic data, um, what, why are most asset prices going up. And really, yes, there's been some positive news, um, and we'll, we'll touch on what those are. But the real part is it's been liquidity coming into markets. And that's why we've seen this broad-based, um, all-assets, everything uh, bubble. And just to um, interject, if I might there, Robert, just on this question of, of dollar liquidity, um, for, for um, to be clear, when the dollar is strengthening against other currencies, that is liquidity falling. So a strong dollar means less liquidity and a weaker dollar means more liquidity. That's right, isn't it, as far as the rest of the world is concerned? Exactly. The rest of the world, when the dollar falls, it's easier to obtain dollars. And the problem, the dollar strengthening, dollars are becoming scarcer. Um, it's more difficult. That's when interest rates rising um, was, was the problem of liquidity coming out of the markets. People overextended, didn't have the, the dollars they needed. And I think the most notable example, and why, why we can characterize it more, less about the economic data, more about liquidity, is not only is everything going up, the stocks in the last couple of weeks, which have gone up the most, really, is being short covering. So it's the, the bad quality stocks people were shorting actually have suddenly rebounded. And another example is cryptocurrencies. That very much follows that liquidity wave. Liquidity going into the markets as the, as the dollar falls and crypto reaches its record highs. In that period where the dollar started to strengthen and we saw the pressure in, in the crypto markets and we've seen some of the casualties like FTX last year. But so very much last few weeks, Bitcoin rallying, uh, that's a story of some liquidity coming into the market. So that's the, the reason maybe to be optimistic. And the story was always about the, the catalyst where there has been improvement, liquidity coming in, inflation starting to peak and fall allowing the central banks potentially people are front running this pivot um, that, that may come to support markets and really also china reopening china reopening is great news for the the economy in china but also potentially the the, the people's bank of china is going to pump some liquidity in from from their side as well so um yes liquidity and some of those catalysts we were looking for to get more bullish have have been the, the good news but so you might say well there's good news markets are rising but it's not quite as simple as that because, um, unfortunately, the markets have been, because based on that liquidity, really, have been overrunning the good news. The markets have gone up too high given uh, the amount of uh, news there is on policy, liquidity, support. And the real big picture problem, which I think has become quite consensus, although the positioning is not theirs, is really about the, the economic cycle and the profit cycle. So as we go into this year, the expectation is for recession. Growth is slowing across a number of different regions. Uh, potentially, we're entering a global recession across many different countries. But most notably, I think uh, the US, as one of the major economies, is, is the one which people are watching to see when that slows. And when we look at all of the data, um, 
yes, certainly clearly on manufacturing, but also just recently on retail sales, you're seeing a lot of the data pointing towards um, recession. And recession this year um, is, I suppose, the base case expectation. And that also leads to uh, the earnings recession, which is as important for equity markets. So expecting earnings then to fall. So revenues to fall, but also profitability. The profit margins have been quite wide, and you'd expect those to fall as well in this environment, given the lagged effect of some of those um, input cost increases on wages, on uh, energy, uh, and, and other input costs. So I suppose... In, a, in an environment where you're facing recession and earnings recession, it's perhaps time to be a bit more cautious, particularly because what's priced in, people may expect this recession, but the equity markets really last year were only pricing in um, that uh, rise in interest rates, really that the, the deflation risk of the last few years, negative bonds, that abnormal environment from going from negative and low yields to just basically normal yields caused that bigger sell-off of bonds last year. And really, the equity markets, it's been the interest rate component, um, that that uh, cost of capital, which has been repriced. What hasn't been repriced, um, equity markets have not priced in that recession or, or earnings recession. Um, so again, I suppose when we're looking at this year, it started in a buoyant fashion based on liquidity. But Unfortunately, the news on profits and earnings, um, well, sorry, uh, e economic growth and earnings really is, is the reason to be a bit more cautious. Um, so those are the two main factors we're, we're looking at. Clearly, growth slowing, um, be cautious on the economic cycle. Potentially, you're going to get some positive news from liquidity. Um, but really, the big two big drivers, which I think make, make the uncertainty about when we're, we're seeing the timing of all this, is... On the one hand, um, markets are front-running the expected um, Federal Reserve and other central banks pivot to, to, to easing policy. But as markets rally, that eases financial conditions and makes it harder for those central banks to actually ease policy. And it's that reflexive um, uh, debate or contest, really, that we're, we're seeing. Markets easing conditions too much means central banks actually are going to have to keep rates higher than the markets are currently pricing in. Um, and, and that's one of the key considerations. And the other, clearly, reopening of China could be a really positive surprise to, 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 for growth. So those two unknowns, I think, are the, the things we're watching most carefully. But why it's important for portfolios is at the moment, certainly on the equity and credit markets, the bad news is not priced in. So it's a time really you can protect portfolios at a reasonable, um, uh, in, a, in a reasonable way, in a relatively cheap way, while maintaining some upside exposure to equities. And that um, you touched on expectations there, Robert, and obviously there's what's going to happen um, and then there's what people think is going to happen. So let's, if we might, talk a bit about the, the recessions that most commentators believe are coming. So what's your, what's your base case for the depths of recessions that lie ahead in the, the US, the UK uh, and the Eurozone? And uh, how does that compare to uh, predictions in the market? And what happens if it turns out that they are indeed worse than predictions? What are the assets? Uh, what are the things that you can do in portfolios that are most likely to provide protection? Hmm. So I think, start, I think starting with what's expected by the markets at the moment, 
as we said, that soft landing uh, is pretty much priced in. So either uh, barely having a recession or, or avoiding a recession entirely, um, given that, that immaculate um, policy policy support will prevent um, that, that uh, a dr- dramatic drop off in growth. That's what's priced into the equity markets. Now, I would say um, there is certainly some good news. If we're looking at the scale of recession, um, maybe we the, the obvious comparators are some of the recent ones. So if we compare it to the sort of 07 great financial crash and the dot-com recession 2000 and, uh, to 2002, I think clearly they're two ends of the spectrum. We have a balance sheet recession, which are clearly more severe, more severe uh, problems and last longer. So bigger, dire- uh, bigger magnitude, last longer is the 08. And the 2000 really was the immaculate. Um, it wasn't really an economic recession, barely. It lasted that long. Uh, growth was uh, pretty uh, pretty modest. Um, and the key differentiator as well, often uh, it, people say that the housing market drives the, is the economic cycle in the US. And that's really the big difference between those two cycles. On the one hand, balance sheet recession with US housing at its center, 08 was a pretty difficult recession with a lot of deleveraging, whereas 2000, the housing market um, supported growth through that period. So of the two ends of the spectrum, expectations are certainly more towards the weaker recession, more like a 2000. Now, I think that there's something to be said for it could be in that direction. Clearly, uh, consumers and the household balance sheets are much better now. Um, U.S. housing overall is in a better condition if we're considering things like the amount of fixed rate mortgages, uh, the amount of uh, equity le- loans that, that that have been taken out against um, against the value of the properties, and the amount of household construction that's taken place over the last several years. We're in a better state, so it looks like it may be a better uh, a better condition. And the other factor is the the labour market. There are some possibilities really that um, not only are households in a better shape, uh, there is some still some excess savings uh, built up post-COVID that can support household uh, expenditure. And maybe companies, given the, the rise in wages uh, recently, companies are going to be a bit more reluctant to let, um, uh, let um, employees go. So there might be a bit of hoarding of labour. So there are some factors which point towards um, a more benign recession. And I think it's more likely to be in that direction. But it could be a recession that then persists a bit longer. So uh, labour hoarding is good for preventing uh, a big decline in growth. But actually, uh, effectively, you don't have the sudden shock and then recovery. Um, you, you, you sort of uh, extend the problem for a bit longer. And actions like that potentially we could see a recession which lasts a bit longer than expectations. So I think at the margins, expectations are for a pretty shallow and quick recession. And maybe the recession will be a bit um, bit deeper than, than is expected and last a bit longer. Um, albeit that, the, you know, the, 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 yeah, there are some, some positive signs. Now, um, I think there is still big uncertainty about the magnitude. And this is where really uh, that interplay of, of what happens by policy actually will change the, uh, the the course of events and why your policy needs, why your portfolio needs to be protected against multiple outcomes is whilst a, a more benign recession is more likely, um, uh, the hard recession 
isn't actually out of the question. We still have a massive overhang of, of debt. That remains one of the key issues um, out there. Inflation is still pretty high. And we're going in with relatively high um, asset valuations. So we do. And also, when we look at corporate debt, uh, corporate debt is, is pretty extended. And the quality uh, of some of the lending um, uh, has been pretty questionable in, in recent years. And Chinese housing still remains a big, uh, big overhang and a big potential problem. So there are risks to going into that hard landing. So it's not out of the question. And if central banks raise rates too fast and keep them too fast as we head into recession, there is the potential to push economies in that direction. So given that uncertainty, all the good news is priced in. It may be a bit worse. Uh, things may get a bit worse, may last a bit longer. What do you do about it in portfolios? I think that's the good news is given that setup, you can still protect your portfolios um, against that more difficult environment. Um, so what do we do about that? I think there are a couple of things. One is our equity exposure. We're not selling all our equities, even though we're expecting uh, an earnings recession and more difficult environment for growth. We still maintain equities just in the parts of the world and the types of companies which are cheap, the better opportunities, value equities, equities outside the US being, being some examples, quality companies. And on the other side, uh, we're actually hedging the downside of our, our portfolio. So hedging that potential decline of, uh, of a normal recession, a normal earnings recession, earnings dropping 10, 20, 25 percent. Um, so we're protecting uh, portfolios with portfolio hedges. And in that way, if things turn out worse, we protect on the downside. But actually, in a month like January, um, our portfolios are actually benefiting on the upside. So you can capture most of the upside while still protecting the downside. Given the complacency in markets, volatility is still uh, pretty low. And on the other side, we, we add portfolio diversifiers. So on the hedge fund side, strategies which benefit from this greater volatility in uh, currency markets, in interest rates like macro and futures trading uh, managers, they were a big ballast to portfolios last year, up over 20%, many of the, the names in the portfolio, um, while bonds and equities were down. So maintaining those types of diversifiers. But also, unlike last year, we've added to long duration bonds um, in, in December. Actually, as a way, given recession is coming, uh, is, is one of the big concerns this year. In that environment, you can have a short term period where interest rates fall as we enter into a deflationary period as inflation peaks and comes away. So there is still there is now a, a case in 2023 to use some uh, bonds to protect some hedge funds to protect and hedging as a way to protect against those core positions where there's still value and opportunity um, in the world today. And I think if we just touch quickly on on a bit more on, on hedging, uh, you you hinted at it there, which is uh, that the the right moments to hedge are when uh, markets uh, think the opposite thing is 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 going to happen. So. Um, you know, in the case of equities, if people are suddenly feeling a bit sunnier uh, about the world and uh, equities are, uh, are going up, that is actually a better time to be buying uh, insurance against the opposite happening, that is equities going down. And, uh, and likewise, a good time to buy duration is when people are most gloomy about inflation. 
Exactly. So that the, the perfect timing in both cases. So the good news today, volatility is pretty low, actually, given uh, that complacency, that rise in liquidity. So there is an opportunity even for investors which don't have hedges in place to, to protect your portfolios. There are other techniques uh, that you can use to, to still protect to get it using put spreads as an example rather than puts. Um, uh, so, so you can still uh, provide protection in portfolios. But I think you need to be dynamic uh, to that point, choose the right moment, um, but also consider it in the context of a wider portfolio. Um, as I said, there are still opportunities and, and ways uh, to make money. So taking value uh, uh, investing as an example, that's something we talked about on our previous incarnation as a webinar for many years. Um, actually, today, the value spread between cheap companies and expensive companies, even though it rallied last year, is still um, as almost as wide as it was in the dot-com period. And when it starts that wide, that value spread, um, if that spread converges, that's a period where value investing will really outperform. Um, so, even though markets may look expensive overall, uh, or, or, and there are dangers of recession, that spread converging means the next three to five years, particularly, um, should be a particularly good environment for value investing. So, in our portfolios today, we don't just have long-only value exposure; we have long-short value exposure as a way to just isolate that spread, uh, which still can provide a good. Uh, portfolio performance, even if there is uh, in the in the short term uh, some headwind um, to, to earnings and and uh, profitability. Let's talk more generally about opportunities. You touched on uh, one there, which is uh, value equities. Uh, what are the opportunities that uh, we're actively monitoring at the moment and looking at and studying, and and uh, what's the rationale behind those? Hmm. So I'll give a couple that we uh, we've put into the portfolio recently, or some, some examples, and some that we're looking at to the future. So I think what's there at the moment, the value spread, as I, as I mentioned, but also um, there are pockets of the world which look cheap, and one particular market I'll, I'll highlight. Um, now the rest of the world has started to outperform, but this is with a period of last ten years where the U.S. has really outperformed the rest of the world, and it's in these periods where the U.S. does really well, the dollar's really strong. Uh, then you go into longer periods where there's a dollar bear market, and the rest of the world um, does better than the U.S. So if we're right and we're in that regime shift um, period and the rest of the world does well, that's where you want to look. So where else in the rest of the world, in particular Japan? So in Japan, um, it's, it is a story of very cheap companies. So if you're looking for uh, cheap companies on uh, multi multiples, price to book multiples, there are plenty, even net cash companies, there's plenty of opportunities in Japan. Japan looks very cheap. This is coming on the back of uh, really the last 30 years Japan was extremely expensive at the end of the 80s, and it's just declined. The valuations have declined over that whole period. You wanted to be underinvested in Japan. But now, um, arguably, um, Japan looks really cheap to start, which is good news. The second big uh, bit of good news, uh, the currency is really cheap. Now, we've seen some of that reversal happen already. Um, so the, the yen had got super cheap against the dollar, and it, it's rebounded um, quite quite a bit in the last uh, last few weeks, last, last month or so. Um, but the yen still remains very cheap. So you've got cheap uh, companies, cheap currency. And also, the, the third uh, line really is um, there's been some 
and there is still remains room for corporate governance reform. So that was Abe's famous third arrow um, was to try and improve uh, corporate governance and uh, really the, the capital allocation and uh, uh, performance of companies, the return on equity of companies in Japan. Now. On the ground, there has actually been improvements. There has been a corporate governance reform. We've seen changes in um, non non executive directors in Japan, and we have seen quite good profitability under the surface. Actually, Japanese since Abenomics came in, uh, Japanese uh, profitability of companies has been almost as strong as the US. So we've seen good un- under the under the radar actual growth in earnings, but there's still plenty of potential catch up in return on equity. Uh, plenty of really inefficient the, the balance sheets have still got plenty of cash. And if we are seeing that period of inflation coming back, Japan would be the country that would really benefit from that. So that that gives you the third wave. And on top of that, I think, is the manager selection piece. We've identified there an activist manager uh, that can unlock some of those um, particular sources of value. So I think adding all those pieces together, that remains a really good opportunity. And we've also looked at other long-short market-neutral opportunities as a way to Take advantage of a of a stock pickers market where really now um, earnings are being uh, rewarded or punished more than they used to be. Uh, so really, you're you're seeing uh, if if earnings uh, hit meet their guidance, uh, the stock market performs. Uh, the, the stocks of those companies rise, and if they miss, then the stock market uh, market punishes those uh, companies' share prices. So we're seeing uh, that that if you have uh, stock picking ability, now's a moment where you should be rewarded, it should be a good environment. So those types of strategies, can you can add return while maintaining reducing market risk. So that's what we're doing today or in the last few months. I think looking forward, um, if we do see markets uh, decline, I think not only is there an opportunity to add more broadly equity exposure and pick up those, those bargains, but I think credit markets could be the market that turns first. And that's where we're putting a lot of our research effort into. Um, there will be a lot of dislocation um, and potentially a rise in the, the distress cycle. So there have been a, too much debt um, taken on by, by companies in that world when interest rates are very low. As we have that normalization of rates and going to a more tricky economic environment, there's plenty of opportunity there on the distress side and looking at um, dislocated credits. Um, so that's a, an area we're researching actively. Now, it's not to, to deploy today, but actually uh, spreads, as we said, with equity market, with credit markets and not pricing uh, that risk of recession, really. Um, but when spreads widen, if you see the high yield spreads in the US go up to 800, 1,000 basis points, that gives you arguably an environment where um, if you can pick the right manager and pick the right space, you'll, you'll have market performance, but also um, some stock picking performance as well. So that's a that's a piece uh, that that's sort of a timing and a moment we're looking for quite actively. We don't have credit in the portfolios at the moment, but I think credit and distressed credit is a, is one of the opportunities we're looking for later in the year. So uh, so value equities, uh, non-US, particularly Japan, and and credit. Maybe, Robert, just to um, round off, uh, let's look at what, looking backwards, was the great opportunity of the last decade, perhaps the story of the uh, of the decade plus after the, uh, the financial crisis was a story of, of tech, tech stocks, tech ideas. And then I think uh, yesterday or the day before, Microsoft announced Quite significant redundancies that come on top of redundancies on, on many other firms. What, what what's happened to what was the 
great opportunity of the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, so arguably you do see these uh, these cycles, and I think when we're we're considering regime shift, I think look at the rest of the world against the US. That's one of the regimes. The other of value and growth, as we mentioned, and on the sectors that feeds a bit from that. So it, it, the big example of value and growth, I suppose, is sort of looking at tech against. Uh, natural resources, energy, financials. And there we've seen that big uh, difference in performance the last 10 years. Now, if we are going to a period where the regime is shifting from a deflationary regime, interest rates falling to an inflationary regime, um, this is an, it could be an environment where actually uh, real assets do well against financial assets. So energy, natural resources could do well against tech on a relative basis. Financials with a steeper yield curve could do well, uh, again, compared to some of those growth uh, duration names, the, the large cap tech names. So I think those are some of the big picture moves that we we could could see. Um, and I think linked to that, I think some of the areas I, di- I didn't mention uh, before, but we, you know, a part of that theme that we're looking at uh, in the rest of the world, I think emerging markets is the other key beneficiary. So again, if we go through why might they do well, they start really cheap. Um, they've had 10 years of under, relative underperformance. Uh, they benefit from commodities. So in a, in, a, in a cycle, if we do have the economic upswing, um, when we get to that, um, and a period where commodities have a, have a shortage of supply, and there's been a lack of investment, uh, commodity countries, commodity uh, equities will do well, and there's a bias to that within emerging markets. So commodities, rising economic data, falling dollar, Again, the re- emerging markets typically a great environment uh, in that case, and you start with cheap valuations, and that gives you a so. And there, arguably, there are some uh, geopolitical stories, headwinds as well. Maybe that's some of the the risk premium, but it certainly uh, gives you that potential performance. So, I think emerging markets, um, real assets. Uh, value equities. I think these are going to be some of the winners if we do see that big um, wholesale um, shift in cycle. And I think the last example I would give as well. So there's the the big picture cycle, what you want to capture in the last next ten years. But there's also those dislocation trades. So we talked about distressed um, credit. That's a dislocation trade. Uh, shorter term. It's not one of the the cycle trades. Another example would be the secondary market. So it's not just dislocated companies and distressed companies. That's an opportunity to come when we start to see the the difficulty feed through um, into fundamental data of companies. I think what we're seeing already today uh, and in the last few months has been distressed owners. So if you're looking at um, the the owners of the assets who, because of that squeeze on liquidity, um, suddenly uh, are forced sellers, that's um, an opportunity where you want to pick up the assets that they're being forced to sell. And one of the ways you can do that in private markets, as an example, is through the secondary uh, through secondary funds. And I think there we're seeing some quite wide discounts. So I think this is an environment, again, that we're looking at actively um, to try and add and pick up some of those stakes from, from forced sellers. So I think there are opportunities um, given the the, the the economic short-term cycle that we're seeing, but also the big picture trends, as you talked about, Ian, like emerging market equities, like value equities that we that will be a balance to portfolios for, for, for many years to come. Robert, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you've enjoyed our discussion today, please do uh, subscribe. Otherwise, um, thank you for joining and uh, bye for now.